Welcome to the Christian History Podcast, Chapter 3, Episode 65. Last week, I circled back to the beginning of Exodus and started working my way through the people and places in that book, at least those that weren't Egyptians. And I only made it to the second verse before I ran into the first set of people with a known, at least somewhat known, history. And these are the tribes of Israel. In that episode, I covered the histories of the tribes of Reuben, Gad, and Manasseh. If you missed that episode, you should go back and give it a listen. I did leave one thing out, though. The tribe of Manasseh is not mentioned in the first chapter of Exodus, as it is not named after a son of Jacob that traveled with him to Egypt, and instead is named after Jacob's grandson, through his son Joseph. So, part of the house of Joseph... Many episodes ago, I covered that the descendants of Joseph were essentially given a double allotment due to Jacob being so pleased with his son. The actual passage can be found in Genesis chapter 48. The first mention of Manasseh is actually quite earlier, in Genesis chapter 41, when his birth is recorded. And the first mention of the tribe of Manasseh is much later, in Numbers chapter 1. But I did warn you that the flow of the historical narrative would take precedence over the order found in Exodus, so it's not entirely out of sequence. This week, I'm covering the second half of the house of Joseph, the tribe of Ephraim. After that, a bit of the history of how researchers think the two tribes from the house of Joseph interacted and alternative theories on how the split occurred. Then, I'll quickly cover what little is known about Issachar, Zebulun, Naphtali, and Asher. And with that, let's get started. When I left off last week, I was halfway through the house of Joseph, covering the tribe of Manasseh. The other half of the tribe is Ephraim. Of course, this tribe is named after the second son of Joseph, the one who was designated by Jacob as being the primary heir. According to Exodus and Joshua chapter 1, Moses' successor, Joshua, was descended from Ephraim, so a member of the tribe with the same name. Therefore, as the Israelites entered Canaan after Moses' death, they were being led by an Ephraim. Joshua would then assign his native tribe land in the center of Canaan, west of the Jordan River, south of the territory of Manasseh, and north of the tribe of Benjamin. Well after this, the territory, well most of it, would become known as Samaria, home of the Samaritans. As seen in the 17th chapter of Joshua, the territory was bordered by the rivering gulch, the Nahala Kana, on the north, separating it from Manasseh. The modern Israeli town of Karne Shamaran is close to this east-west ravine. The border of Ephraim extended from the Jordan River in the east to the Mediterranean Sea in the west. The territory contained the city of Gezer. According to Joshua chapter 10, Gezer was inhabited by Canaanites long after Joshua had either killed or expelled the other Canaanites. So the land the Ephraim occupied was not for their exclusive use, and this is a valid point for essentially all of the tribes. There were people other than Hebrews in their midst, which is one of the many reasons for the constant struggles with other nations. As for Gezer, 
It is thought to have been identified by French archaeologist Charles Claremont Gainau in 1871. He believed that Gezer marked the extreme western point of the territory of Ephraim and was located at the intersection of the boundaries of Ephraim, Dan, and Judah. But this perspective is in conflict with the boundaries as recorded in the Old Testament, which states that Ephraim included beachfront property on the Mediterranean. The geography of the area was rather mountainous, which provided a reasonably defensible position from invaders. And despite being mountainous, it was also relatively fertile, prime real estate. In this territory would develop the two major centers of the early Hebrew religion, the cities of Shechem and Shiloh. The abundant land and the religious centers made Ephraim into one of the most dominant tribes in the kingdom, so dominant that it expanded its territory. In the initial allotment, the territory did not include the city of Bethel, but by the era of the singing of Deborah, Bethel was in the territory of Ephraim. How, when, and why this happened was not recorded. Later, after the united monarchy, Bethel would be captured by Abijah, the second king of the kingdom of Judah. There will be more on him and the inner Israelite conflicts in a later episode. Also, and similar to the three tribes I covered last week, when the tribes united under Saul, the tribe of Ephraim was part of that united kingdom. Upon Saul's death and the splitting of the kingdom, Ephraim would align with the other northern tribes and remain loyal to the house of Saul. Only the tribe of Judah would follow a different tact. And, of course, when the kingdom would reunite under David, Ephraim was there too. But, as you should know by now, the kingdom would split again when Rehoboam, David's grandson, took the throne. Ephraim would join the other northern kingdoms and choose Jeroboam as their new leader. And, of course, the Ephraimites supported this king, as he was a member of their tribe. He took the throne around 931 BC and ruled for about 22 years. Ephraim would remain part of the northern kingdom until it was conquered by Assyria, around 723 BC, and with this defeat, many members would be deported, and the tribe essentially disappeared. So, it was one of the ten lost tribes. Similar to the other tribe in the house of Joseph, the Manasseh, several modern-day peoples claim to have descended from the Ephraim. Of course, there are the Samaritans. There are also many Persian Jews. Then there is a group in India, calling themselves the Bini Ephraim, who claim a relationship. But, also like the Indian Jewish people I covered in the last episode, this identification is not without controversy. There are many other groups claiming to be related to the Ephraim, but these usually serve a political purpose of claiming their right to rule is due to the inheritance of Joseph's younger son. Outside of the Bible, many archaeologists believe that there were two distinct cultures in Canaan, a strong and prosperous northern kingdom and a weaker and poorer southern one. And, of course, the text tells us of how they did unite into a single kingdom under Saul and then fractured into two. This fracture is thought to have been at least partially attributable to the jealousy of the Ephraim over Judah's increasing political power. 
Then, in the book of 2 Chronicles, in chapter 15, we see that Ephraim's split from Judah is condemned as forsaking God. With this, Ephraim is depicted as turning out to be highly irreligious, particularly in their resistance to the reforms enacted by Hezekiah and Josiah. Then, and possibly due to this, we see in Psalm chapter 78 that God refused the tabernacle of Joseph and chose not the tribe of Ephraim, but chose the tribe of Judah, the Mount Zion which he loved. This is also thought to represent the movement of the Ark of the Covenant from Ephraim-held territory, actually the city of Shiloh, to Mount Zion in Jerusalem. There is much more about the Ephraimites found in different textual Jewish extra-biblical writings, such as they actually left Egypt 30 years prior to the Exodus, immigrating back to Canaan. When they arrived, they were quickly and resoundingly defeated by the Philistines. In the Midrashtic Jazer, an extra-biblical book actually mentioned in Joshua chapter 10, it is thought that the early departure signifies a rebellion of Ephraim against God, resulting in the slaying of all but ten of their number. Then, the bleached bones of the slaughtered were strewn across the roads, so much so that the circular route of the Exodus was simply an attempt by God to prevent the Israelites from having to suffer the sight of the remains. Now, keep in mind that the usual caveats apply. Not my thoughts or beliefs, but just in case you run across it, now you know. Moving along. But before shifting to the other delineated tribes, a bit about the combined tribes of Manasseh and Ephraim, the house of Joseph. I know I have a smart audience, and you all will consider this next part a bit redundant, but just for the record, the tribe of Joseph was simply the accumulation of the tribes of Ephraim and Manasseh. Sometimes, very rarely, the tribe of Benjamin is also included. Rarely. More on that in a minute. More frequently, the two tribes are called the tribes underneath the house of Joseph. And, after settling in Canaan, the house of Joseph held an immense territory, ranging from the east side of the Jordan to the Mediterranean in the west. To the immediate north were the tribes of Issachar, Zebulun, and Asher. And to the immediate south were the tribes of Benjamin, Dan, and Gad. And, like I mentioned earlier, the western portion would be known as Samaria. This land had water, mountains, fertile plains. And when this is included with the two previously mentioned religious centers, Shiloh and Shechem, the land was probably the best in Canaan. The children of Joseph had been duly rewarded and would leverage the prosperity that the territory would bring to remain the most powerful tribes in the land for a while. And, like you would suspect, when the tribes were defeated by the Assyrians, many members, especially those in higher positions, were exiled. They were lost. Up until this point, I have avoided what that really means. They didn't really just disappear. Instead, as part of the deportation to Assyria and the later Babylonian captivity, the most likely explanation is that the tribes lost their distinctions. 
a distinction that was once bound by the borders of the territories in familial relationships. When they eventually returned, they were no longer of Manasseh, Ephraim, Gad, or others, but they were simply Jewish. Of course, the legend of the Lost Tribes does not end there. In addition to the previously covered claimed descendants, there are a few that claim a relationship to the House of Joseph. A group in Pakistan and Afghanistan, known as the Yusufite tribe, who are part of the Pashtuns, they refer to themselves as Bani Israel. And you have to admit that Yusuf is phonetically similar to Joseph. They have long considered themselves exiles from the house. Joining them is a group in Iran. Who knows? After exile, some may have gone eastward instead of returning to Canaan, which gets me to the tribe of Benjamin. But before diving headlong into that tribe, a minute or so about how it would have been part of the house of Joseph. Many biblical scholars posit that this was actually true, but also claim that the biblical account of this became lost. Without getting too deep into it, these researchers believe that the tribe of Benjamin broke off from the Joseph group once it had settled in Canaan and allied with the kingdom of Judah, rather than that of Israel perhaps as part of the political fracturing when the kingdom split after Solomon. And I'm going to pause the history of Benjamin at this point and pick it up when I cover the tribe of Judah, as their later histories are extremely similar. Next is the tribe of Zebulun, who would end up being another of the lost tribes. The territory assigned to them by Joshua was at the southern end of Galilee, with its eastern border being the Sea of Galilee, the western border at the Mediterranean Sea, the south being bordered by the tribe of Issachar, and the north by Asher on the western side, and Naphtali on the eastern, essentially in the north of Canaan between the two seas. Now, take these delineations with a grain of salt, as the territory would grow and shrink with the changing fortunes of the tribe, and given their geographic position, their history, through the period of the judges, the uniting, the disuniting, the reuniting, and the split of the kingdom would align with that of their neighbors. And on a more micro scale, they were consistently associated with the tribe of Issachar. That tribe was generally viewed as scholars studying the Torah. Zebulon would use their financial resources to support Issachar's scholarship. It's thought that what Zebulon received in return for the patronage was religious knowledge and the blessings associated with it. A different interpretation was that the members of the tribe were great warriors and officers in the military of the northern kingdom. Backing up a bit, according to several parts of the Old Testament, the tribe of Zebulon played an important role in the early history of Israel. In the first chapter of Numbers, there is a report of a census. Does the title of that book now make more sense? In this chapter, the census counted over 57,000 men of Zebulun ready for war. These men would be under the command of Eliab, the son of Helon, and encamped with Judah and Issachar east of the tabernacle. The war-fit men of Zebulun, Judah, and Issachar would make up the front line of the marching Israelites. And when Moses sent spies to Canaan, among their number was Gadiel, the son of Sodi, from the tribe. 
then at Shittim in Moab, and as seen in Numbers chapter 26. After 24,000 men were slain for the crime of um, intermingling with the Moabite women, a new census was taken. Despite the loss of men, Zebulun's numbers had grown to over 60,000 fighting men. Finally, in Numbers chapter 34, Elisaphan, the son of Parnach, represented Zebulun when Joshua divided up the promised land. After settling in Canaan, they continued their warrior role, with the Song of Deborah telling of how its members offered their lives in the region of Merom. There are several other mentions in the text of their warring exploits, but you should get the point. As for the territory they were assigned, it ran northward from about 5 miles or 8 kilometers south of Nazareth to some relatively unknown point in the north. This, of course, means it included Nazareth and Bethlehem. The Jewish-Roman historian Josephus, yes, he's back, assigns to Zebulun the land near Carmel and the sea, as far as the lake of Gennesaret, the Sea of Galilee. To its north lay Asher, to the southeast Issachar. It included part of the Jezreel Valley and the great highway from the sea to the lake. Within the territory of Zebulun, Jesus was raised and did and said much that is narrated in the Gospels. End quote. That last part is consistent with our modern understanding, Nazareth and Bethlehem. There are a few people that believe that the Druze may have descended from Zebulun. Of course, like all of the groups that claim relations to the lost tribes, there are others who dispute the claims. And the Druze are a religious group based in the Levant. The Druze faith incorporates elements of Shia Islam, Gnosticism, Neoplatoism, Pythagoreanism, Hinduism, and a smattering of other philosophies and beliefs, creating a distinct and secretive theology. Overall, the Druze emphasize the role of the mind in truthfulness. And that's about all I'll attempt to explain about them leaning on the fact that they are very secretive about their beliefs. Next, quite naturally, is Issachar, and the little we know about them. They are viewed by the other tribes as the preeminent religious scholars, studying the Torah, with their writings impacting the religion in all of the kingdom, and apart from a very general understanding of the boundaries of their allotted land, there is not much else. As for those boundaries, they were to the west of the Jordan, between the river and the sea, with borders on both. They were also north of Manasseh, which placed them south of Zebulun and Naphtali. This territory included the fertile Esdraelon plain. Then there are the Naphtali, also in the north, and another of the lost tribes. Joshua would assign them territory in the two regions known as Upper and Lower Galilee, but of course, it's not upper and lower like the Nile, as the Galilee is a sea. Well, really a medium-sized lake. To their west was Asher, to the north was Dan, and to the south was Zebulun. Also on their south was Issachar. On their east was the Jordan River, with their eastern border following the river about 12 miles or 19 kilometers south of Galilee. Perhaps the only major city in the territory was Hazor. 
Like the others, their territory included a fertile plain, in their case, the plain of Gennesaret. Josephus wrote that it was the ambition of nature, an earthly paradise. It also contained a natural mountain pass that, like most such passes, developed into a trade route. Roads leading to Damascus, Tyre, and Acre all passed through the territory. Since they were in the north, their history mirrored that of the other tribes I've covered so far. Saul, Ishbosha, David, Solomon, and eventually forming the northern kingdom. All the same history, including the exiles. Similar to Zebulun, Naphtali was known for their warriors. They would also be honored in the Song of Deborah. The song sings of how troops led by the Naphtali commander named Barak fought the Canaanites. In the Gideon narrative, the Naphtali are one of the tribes that join in an attack against Midianite invaders. As for their lost tribe, the Bukharian Jews of Central Asia claim to be the descendants of the Naphtali. Finally, at least for today, there is the tribe of Asher, of the Northern Kingdom. In the Old Testament, Joshua assigned Asher western and coastal Galilee, a region with a comparatively moderate temperature and a relatively high level of precipitation, which combined to make it some of the most fertile land in Canaan. Rich pastures, wooded hills, and orchards. In fact, Asher would become known for its olive oil, and agriculture would lead to prosperity. But the text doesn't tell us enough to precisely determine Asher's geographic boundaries. What we are told is that he tended to skew towards towns and villages, but no real description of the land between. So, about the best we can do is encircle these towns and know that the boundary was somewhere close. It also doesn't help that from a geographic and historical perspective, Asher was rather disconnected from the other tribes. It was the most northwest of the tribes and appears to have been more connected to the Phoenicians than to the other tribes. They may have even set out many, if not all, of the battles between the other tribes and the Canaanites. Despite this, Asher was part of the northern kingdom and would share in the same fate, including assuming to have been sent to exile by the Assyrians and thus being another one of the lost tribes. But then, a plot twist. In the New Testament, in Luke chapter 2, Anna the prophetess and her father Fanuo are described as being of the tribe of Asher, and this was written well after the alleged disappearance of the tribe, so maybe lost, maybe not. And there's a small bit of archaeological evidence of the tribe, a group named the Asuru living in about the same region as Asher in the 14th century BC are mentioned in Egyptian monuments dating to the period, so it's not too much of a stretch to think the two groups are the same. This would also help align the Exodus with the Egyptian Hyksos period, but does complicate the theory of a later dated Exodus, which is a good stopping point for this week's episode. Join me next week when I'll work my way southward. You don't want to miss it. Comments and questions can be sent to comments at christianhistorypodcast.com. 
As always, you can find information about the podcast on the internet at ChristianHistoryPodcast.com. This week, help others to find the podcast by leaving a positive review on iTunes. You can find the Facebook page by searching the phrase Christian History Podcast as three separate words. Once there, be sure to like the page so that it's easier to find later. Finally, if you're enjoying the podcast, subscribe so you get the episodes as soon as they are released and you don't miss out. Thanks for listening, and have a great week.